My name is Samantha Garner, and I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a Cheeselandian because I take cheese seriously, just like they do in Wisconsin. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host for today, Jessica Carbone. This episode is part of a special series in collaboration with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. Our new issue, 21.1, features articles on food and power, on care work, and on chefs, restaurants, and culinary creativity. In addition, Gastronomica continues to publish its COVID-19 dispatches, short portraits of early responses to the food crises of this pandemic. For six weeks, join hosts from the Gastronomica Editorial Collective as we talk with authors about their work. Our guest today is Alexis Aliano Sanborn. She is an independent researcher and the director of Nourishing Japan, a documentary that explores food education and school lunch in Japan. She received her BA in East Asian Studies from UC Santa Barbara, her MA in Regional Studies of East Asia from Harvard University, and her MPA from NYU's Wagner Graduate School of Public Service. Alexis, thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. In your article, you draw our attention to the importance of school lunch in the COVID-19 pandemic as it was unfolding in April 2020 in Japan. What were you working on before the realities of the pandemic sunk in? So I had just actually, in December 2019, completed my documentary short, Nourishing Japan, and February and January of 2020 were spent in private screenings, and then we had our public premiere at the Museum of Food and Drink in uh, in Brooklyn. And it was a really exciting time um, to be able to share this film with people and to begin to have uh, deeper discussions of food, food education, and school lunch in Japan, and for people to see it in in person. But of course, um, you know, COVID happened, and the world changed quite rapidly. I would say within a week, um, and the uh, the silver lining of that was that I was able to. Um, monitor what was happening to school lunch in Japan, as it was already a topic that had been on my mind and in my research for so long. So what drew you to the topic of studying school lunches, and particularly why studying them in Japan? So I actually came to school lunches through my background in Japanese studies. Um, so I, I wasn't a food scholar to begin with. I was, I've, I'm a Japan scholar. My background is in the humanities in East Asia. Um, but after graduating college, I had the opportunity to teach English in Japan. And it was there that I actually experienced school lunches, um, eating them every day with my children for two years. And it was, informal fieldwork in a way to see how these lunches are created every day, how they're served, how they're distributed, and really the the networks of the community on which they rely. And I was so inspired that when I went on to graduate school, um, I ended up writing about this in my first semester um, in one of my classes I was taking on food culture and society with Professor Ted Bester. And that became my master's thesis. But even after I graduated, I didn't feel that I had uh, finished telling the story. And the more I studied school lunches, the more I realized just how interconnected they are to so many aspects of society. Um, 
through local economic channels, through community networks, through um, through local governments. They touch on so many different facets, and the the more I've studied about them, the more I have I have just come to realize um, the different way that food can impact people's lives and not just children. Thank you so much for documenting this. And you document this not just in what is served at school, but how it's served. Um, for those of us who are not familiar with what school lunch looks like in Japan, what does it look like? Sure. So it looks a little different than um, things here in the United States. Uh, their meals are based off of um, kind of a traditional meal configuration of a rice uh, or some other type of starch, but tr- more and more rice, um, side dishes, vegetable side dishes, and then a meat dish. But that also often has um, vegetable components mixed in as well. And then usually there is a soup to accompany the meal. And these meals are um, created fresh every day from whole ingredients. So um, as part of creating Nourishing Japan, the documentary, you know, I got, actually got to go into school lunch centers and see par- the carrots being peeled every day uh, or for that day's lunch and um, large vats of soups being created fresh. So they're very, they're very seasonal. They try to incorporate as as much vegetables uh, and fresh ingredients as possible. And um, uh, they are, interestingly, uh, they are, unless they're, a child has allergies or um, there's other special arrangements, they are mandatory for every child in school. And the children are involved not just in um, in preparing and serving the food in the classroom, but also there's a lot of food education that's happening in the classroom itself. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, so food education, uh, in Japanese, that word is shokuiku. And um, it is uh, a concept that is quite well known in Japan nowadays. And that is in part thanks to the passage of the 2005 food, basic law on food education. And this law uh, was about um, inspiring the Japanese people, not just um, in educational environments for, um, for children and that children should learn about what constitutes a healthy diet, What does eating seasonally mean? Having a connection to your food. It was really something for Japanese society at large. And the idea was um, to encourage uh, the Japanese Japanese people to um, maintain or improve their diet, to learn more about where their food came from, and to also help to support local agriculture and industry. Fantastic. Um So as you know, Gastronomica has been publishing COVID-19 dispatches from people contributing to the journal around the world during the last year. And one of the many themes that we've seen emerge via these submissions is this notion of the preparation of food as emotional and physical care work. And you make this connection very explicit in this piece by thinking about what working parents do in relation to the school-provided meal. Um, how have different portions of the working population been, of Japan been affected by the closure of schools? The closure of schools was uh, monumental. Um, it's it impacted so many people in society, and it was it was such an unprecedented thing. Um, on the on the parental level, um, the idea of telecommuting is really not um, that 
sort of widespread in Japan. I think a lot of us, uh, when they think about Japan, they think about a country that is very high tech. Um, but in a lot of ways, their working culture is quite, um, it relies on a lot of traditional um, cultural aspects to it. Uh, one one thing is um, the use of hanko or traditional uh, seals, uh, the equivalent of what we might have as a signature uh, for signing documents and things like that. And digital hanko aren't, they aren't widespread. They don't really exist. So there's really um, a need for people to be physically in the office. Um, Japan is also a culture that in a lot of, you know, it still uses fax machines and the idea of uh, telecommuting, teleworking just really wasn't that um it, it really wasn't implemented in a lot of, uh, in a lot of working spaces throughout the country. So when the schools closed, it really sent a lot of parents reeling because it was not something that their work was necessarily prepared to, to, to do to make this transition to working remotely for a lot of uh, white collar workers. At the same time, speaking about food, um, parents really do rely on the school meals. Um, they rely on them for their affordability because the meals themselves are subsidized by the local governments. The parents only pay um, uh, the cost of the food, of, of the actual food that is being purchased, but the cost of labor um, and infrastructure is covered by the local government. So uh, children are getting meals that you know might cost much, much more um, considering their quality and that they were made uh, fresh every day. So losing those meals meant that um, all of a sudden there was unsubsidized time and labor to go into feeding uh, your children every day um, and having to be home uh, to, to do that. So parents were very much um, impacted, not only through larger kind of workplace culture, but just that the loss of, of a meal that they relied upon and this, this labor and nutrition that is so key uh, for so many families. Then as far as producers go, um, as part of the food education law, there is a, um, a national percentage that all school districts strive to reach in the creation of their school meals of how much locally sourced produce that they would use. And usually that's around 30 to 40 percent, 40 percent being optimal. And of course, if it's higher than that, it's that's wonderful. Uh, but when the schools were shuttered, all these producers, all these local producers um, were suddenly suddenly had no market for something that they relied upon very much within their um, their day to day orders. Right. And that mirrors a lot of what we've seen in the United States as well when it comes to the supply chain flow of different kinds of ingredients into restaurants and school systems as well. So in your research, what are some of the different uh, distribution strategies that you saw emerging to compensate for this shuttering of the schools? So there were there were government initiatives. Um, the Ministry of Agriculture, for, uh, Forestry, and Fisheries (MAF), as it is known, um, they really jumped into action. Uh, you know, pretty soon after the the schools were shuttered, um, they did this through large and small ways. Uh, one way was promoting food banks as a way for local producers that suddenly had their entire school lunch market, um, you know, swept out from underneath them to encourage them to donate or to work with local food banks um, to um, to find a new uh, source uh, of this of produce and other and other items. 
Another way was through uh, actually working with private industry, um, one of them being a an online retailer that uh, they set up a website as a way for um, school lunch providers and local producers to sell their ingredients directly to companies or to, um, you know, private citizens. And so there was a, suddenly a way that people had an uh, an ability to purchase food lunch items um, that would have otherwise uh, not had a market. So that, w- that was another way. At this point, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. My name is Samantha Garner and I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a Cheese Landian because I take cheese seriously, just like they do in Wisconsin. Cheese Landia is a community for loud and proud cheese lovers brought to life by Wisconsin Cheese. I know that I can always cook amazing food with their cheese and it's even good enough just to snack on. As a Cheese Landia member, I know there is always a supportive community behind me who always gets as excited as I do about cheese. Go to cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. Check us out on Instagram at cheeselandia. And we're back. This is Meant to be Eaten. I'm Jessica Carbone, talking with Alexis Aliano Sanborn about her article, Lunch Interrupted, COVID-19 and Japan's School Meals, available in the current issue of Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. Alexis, in your discussion of school lunches in Japan, you raise a very important topic that has plagued lots of branches of the food world in this moment, which is the proliferation of food waste, of canceled orders, of harvests abandoned and left to rot in the field. Was this a significant problem in Japan prior to the pandemic? Their food waste in Japan has been an issue for quite some time, but it wasn't, I think, until perhaps the past two, three or four years that it really entered the that it really entered the public consciousness. Um, if any of our listeners have ever been to Japan, they might have marveled at uh, just the high quality of the produce and the precision that goes into so much of the cooking and the presentation. But of course, that uh, that presentation comes at the cost of a lot of food waste um, because the um, the the aesthetics are are so very much valued. So movements that we have here in the United States of the ugly food movement and things like that, that hasn't really um, taken off yet in Japan because there is there is this idea of you know food must look perfect and be quite beautiful. But increasingly, Japanese consumers are becoming aware of this issue. And indeed, the Japanese government in 2009 passed a law um, trying to, in an effort to reduce food waste in Japan and work towards sustainable development goals. Um, and I think the the target is to cut food waste in half. So it has been a problem. I think COVID certainly exacerbated it Um However, because COVID has just disrupted so much of the food landscape, it's difficult to be able to see how um, how things can, you know, this law that was passed uh, might be might be put on hold as other uh, as other more pressing concerns uh, take uh, more of the forefront of the public dialogue and conversation. COVID being primary among them. 
in the conversations that might have been shifted to the forefront of um, the government's mind, was hunger ever a component of that uh, conversation? Well, that was one of the reasons that um, the Japanese government did support um, so much of the school lunch produce being uh, working with food banks, because um, increasingly childhood poverty and poverty in Japan um, is an issue, and so working with food banks was is one way that I think the Japanese government is trying to um, address this issue during COVID. And was there anything comparable to the American concept of the food bank in Japan prior to this moment? So food banks are actually relatively new to Japan. The first one was founded in 2002, so only about 20 years ago. And um, NGOs are generally, you know, they, they have a bit of kind of a fraught relationship. And something like food banks in particular, there's a lot of... Um, Traditionally, there has been a lot of stigma, unfortunately, against food banks. So they just haven't um, entered the public conversation as much or even people realizing that food banks um, as as a concept exist. So one of the benefits of um, COVID-19, I think, is that there is much more of a discussion of equity and access to food uh, for everyone during this extremely stressful time. So... I anticipate that even after COVID has hopefully settled down, food banks will um, become more of a, a way that companies can work to um, di- to diminish their food waste um, or to um, to work with the food banks so that um, their products could be donated or otherwise um, be um, you know consumed in by people who need them. I'm glad you brought up this question of what future uh, solutions might emerge from the private sector in Japan Um, in in response to the pandemic and in engagement with the broader food system in general. You previously mentioned the efforts of the Ministry of Agriculture, Forestry and Fishery in working with the private sector to help come up with new distribution systems. Uh, What other innovations do you see emerging out of this moment from the private sector? It's been interesting to observe uh, what's been happening on the ground. And I think prior to COVID-19, um, a lot a lot of restaurants weren't necessarily um, equipped for the, the takeout business that, you know, might be uh, quite as popular here in the United States. And COVID-19, I think, really helped to... Um, allow restaurants to expand their services and to also think a bit more uh, broadly about uh, their customer base. This as well, too, I think with local producers, uh, a lot of companies that may not have had websites or may not have had their websites set up for purchasing have now really transitioned to an online mode um, in a speed that might not have uh, happened had COVID uh, not necessarily, had COVID not happened. You detail in your article a number of industries that have been forced to innovate due to the pandemic. And perhaps the one that surprised me the most was your discussion of the dairy industry. Um, Why is milk distribution such a big part of this story about school lunches? So when I described school lunch uh, in your prior question, I left out one key thing, which is milk. 
And milk is actually served every day with school lunch. Um, it may be a bit surprising as milk is not traditionally part of the Japanese diet. However, uh, milk is nonetheless served. And there's a, there's a long history and reason as to why this is. But in a nutshell, it's for calcium uh, to help uh, children get their appropriate sources of calcium. When COVID happened, it was um, the middle of February, the beginning of March, just as we were going into spring. And uh, spring is when cows begin to produce uh, very large quantities of milk. It's really the height of the you know milk season, I suppose you could say. And just like how other uh, ingredients of school lunch are, are sourced from local producers, so too is milk uh, sourced from local dairies uh, as much as possible. And the dairy industry, certainly they have cooperatives, but the school lunch market is such a large market for so many. Um, some school, excuse me, some dairies uh, a lot up to 70% of their sales to school lunches. So when the schools close, that is a, a devastating loss. And, um, you know, here in America, we have we have the cheese industry, we have ice cream, we have fruit yogurt. And in Japan, too, they have those things. But generally speaking, dairy products are not consumed as widely or in such quantities as they are here in the United States. So uh, in an effort to bolster the dairy industry that was really suffering during this time, um, the uh, Japanese government stepped in to create the Plus One campaign. And this was a call on uh, a call to all citizens of Japan to consume one more dairy product a day than you might normally do. So instead of um, having a glass of milk or one container, little container of yogurt, you might have an extra serving. And this was um, this was the idea that you know the Japanese dairy industry was hurting, and that we were all in this very difficult situation together. And um, by uh, changing your purchasing habits slightly, it could help to ensure the strength and resiliency of the dairy industry. That's so fascinating in the context of what we would traditionally think of as wartime food initiatives, you know, the bolstering of certain industries for the purpose of promoting the national good or simply rescuing a national industry. It's just fascinating. Um, so as of this recording in February 2021, we are now approaching the very strange anniversary of nearly a year living under the threat of, of this disease, of COVID-19. Can you tell us how, if, if at all, uh, things have changed since you initially wrote the dispatch? Well, the biggest change is that schools have reopened. And they reopened, um, you know, it depends on where in the country uh, the schools are located, but they tended to reopen um, in midsummer to early early autumn. And every school system and every school has their own way of, of approaching COVID. Um, there are certain mandatory things that must be done, like temperature checks and washing hands, certainly. Um, but as far as school lunch is concerned, um, it really depends on for example, if the school is in an inner city, if it's an inner city school with much more students, or if it's located in the in more rural parts. Based on some of the research I've done, schools that are in rural locations have tended to fare better. Um, things 
there's more sense of normalcy uh, compared to compared to maybe in larger cities that are continuing to see surges in COVID cases. Um, most recently, um, in late January into early February, there was uh, quite a spike of cases in Japan. So while things um, get better on one hand, uh, on the other hand, we're definitely not out of this yet. And I'm sure that when COVID first began, no one could anticipate how long uh, this situation would last. And I think a lot of what I wrote about was the initial um, the initial uh, desire to um, help one another and to bolster the industries. And now I think communities are really uh, transitioning to a um, more of a, a resiliency model of putting systems in place and making sure that um, uh, restaurants and um, schools are operating in a way uh, that can continue even as COVID um, will be a part of our lives for, for the near future. Things like restaurants um, are certainly continuing to be impacted. Um, they're one of the biggest industries. However, because schools have reopened, local producers um, are able to have the school lunch market back again. And that is, even though um, they have taken quite a hit during this time, uh, they're able to have school lunches again as, as a way, as, as a market for their produce. So that is, that is a good news um, from this one-year anniversary Nevertheless, it's still really much a wait and see kind of kind of situation. You don't know how long some systems might hold if um, if food food networks can be structurally changed during this time um, f- for a longer period. However, I'm hopeful that um, that things will change for the long term. And so, if something like this, or even a natural disaster, might happen in the future, that um, systems will be in place for producers, for rest, for restaurant owners, for schools to be able to um, more seamlessly um, and uh, nimbly transition. I'm glad you brought up this concept of resiliency um, as something that is foundational to Japanese society, particularly when we talk about collective behaviors around food and feeding each other. And there are two terms that emerge in your research that I, I would love to learn more about. One of those terms is kodomo shokudo which you describe as a kind of children's cafeteria model. Um, and the other one is jishuku, which you translate as uh, or define as a kind of collective self-regulation. What relationship do you see these terms as having to the broader uh, Japanese response to COVID-19? So first I'll talk about Jishuku. Um, In the article, I uh, explain it as collective self-regulation. Another way um, that... um, it could also be described as is voluntary restraint. Um, the voluntary restraint from luxury or celebration um, or, or, or even fun in a way. And this is in an idea to express solidarity with the victims. Um, I think one of the, when a classic example of Jishuku was during the 2011 
uh, Great East Japan earthquake and tsunami, which subsequently followed. And it was there, it was in this time, in the immediate aftermath and for many months to follow, that the nation banded together um, in solidarity to to support the victims. Um, I happened to be in the country at the time and uh, had I had a vacation, a little a little vacation scheduled, and I ended up canceling it because I felt, looking at everyone around me, um, that this was not a time to be to be having fun. This was a time to be in solidarity with other people. And it was actually in having that solidarity and, and working together through this very, this very emotional, this very emotional time that people were able to find comfort and strength in one another. And, um, in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, when Abe closed the schools or requested that the schools be closed and into the spring, uh, there was a call for Jishuku, a call that we all work together um, and and to restrain from our lives as it may have been before the pandemic. And similarly, when looking at uh, the concept of Kodomo Shokudo, this is a the model of helping other children, helping your community and working together because one person's suffering, one's child's suffering can be everyone's. And by working together, ultimately, um, the community will be able to overcome, grow stronger, and become more resilient. And COVID-19 has certainly been a test of Jishuku, um, just because it has gone on for so long, and there is no, there's no real end in sight. Um, but uh, nevertheless, uh, it's, it's something that when you have to work together, to ultimately overcome and to build back stronger. Thank you so much, Alexis, for sharing your perspective on this topic and for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Listeners can read the full article in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, volume 21.1, released in February 2021. For more details, visit gastronomica.org. Join us next week as we talk with Amy Bentley about the evolution of ketchup as a vegetable in school lunches in Reagan's America. Meant to be eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.